Now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 23. There we find God's word summarized as follows. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 118, the stanzas 2, 5, and 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, Do you think that you will be saved? That may sound like a funny question to you. For you will say that you believe in the Lord Jesus and that everyone who believes in him will be saved. Indeed, that's what you know intellectually. And you are right. That is also what the Bible teaches. But is that also how you feel? You may have been told uh, the truth of the free gift of salvation since childhood, but that does not mean that now you accept that wholeheartedly. In my experience, there are many people who are not really that certain about their salvation. That is because they feel the weight of their sins. They know that they sin against God all the time, and how they just don't seem to be able to help themselves. Salvation may be a certainty for others, but they don't don't feel it as a certainty for themselves. They have that nagging doubt about their faith not being good enough or strong enough. They're afraid that they are not as good a Christian as they should be. Do you know what the problem is? The problem is that we have the wrong perspective. We think that the forgiveness of our sins is sooner for others than for ourselves. Do not think that you are unique in that regard. You are not the only one who has difficulty accepting the forgiveness of sins for themselves. Even someone whose faith is held up for everyone to emulate, he has had his doubts as well. I'm thinking of David in that regard. In Psalm 25, verse 7, David writes, remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. From this psalm, it is clear that David 
is an old man when he penned these words. You would think that by this time David would no longer be worried about the sins that he committed in his youth. Time and again, David has expressed that he knows that his sins are forgiven and that all is well between him and God. And yet, even in his old age, he still feels the weight of his past sins. Not everybody is that way. There are also those who are the opposite. They look at themselves and they think that they're ah, pretty good. They do not find anything really wanting in themselves. Do you know what the problem is in each case? The problem is that we compare ourselves to others. Those who mourn because of their sins look at other people and think that the other people are much better Christians than they are. Those people have it altogether much better. They seem to be able to control their lives better. They have better discipline. They lead a better Christian lifestyle. They have better behaved kids. And those who do the opposite, who think pretty good about themselves, do so because they also compare themselves to others. They look down on others because they see their faults and shortcomings, but they do not see their own, at least not to the extent that they should. They think that they are better than others because of the good persons that they are. And so it is a problem of perception. It is a problem of how we look at ourselves and to whom we compare ourselves. And that's what I will preach to you about this afternoon. I will preach to you about the proper perspective with regard to our standing with God. And then we look at two things. First of all, how we see ourselves. And then secondly, how God sees us. I'll say that once again. I'll preach to you about the proper perspective with regard to our standing with God how we see ourselves in the first place, and then secondly, how God sees us. In the passage that we read together in Luke, it says that Jesus told a parable to those who are confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everybody else. Who do you think those people are? Well, from the context, it is clear that the Lord Jesus is speaking here about the Pharisees. But this applies to everybody, including the disciples. It also includes you and me. For we all do it, even though we don't want to. We, at times, look down at others and think ourselves more important than others. And at other times, we see others as better than ourselves. That is human nature. That is how we compare. At one time, some of the disciples asked the Lord Jesus whether or not they would be sitting at his right hand in the kingdom. They wanted a place of honor because they thought that they were more important or better than the other disciples. As I said, we're not any different. We look around us in this congregation and we notice that there is a lot lacking in this congregation. And you think perhaps if it weren't for me and my contributions, then things would not be as good here in this church. And some may say this or think this because of their hefty financial contributions to the church or because they are involved in many activities in the church, such as visiting in a church and being involved in other ways in the committee of administration or wherever. And in this way, you may think more highly of yourself than others. 
And again, you do that because you compare yourself to others. But the question is never how you measure up to other people in the first place, but how you measure up to God, to his standards. We tend to elevate the opinions of people above the opinion of God. That's also what we see that the, that the Pharisee did in the parable. The Pharisee looked at his fellow countrymen, his brothers and sisters, and compared himself favorably to them. In his prayer, he reminds God that he fasts twice a week and that he gives a tenth of everything that he gets. And he compares himself to robbers, to evildoers, to adulterers, and to unscrupulous tax collectors. And he thanks God that he is not like them. He thought quite highly of himself. However, that's not what the tax collector does. He does not compare himself to the behavior of others. He does not look at how others expect him to conduct himself, but as to how God expects him to conduct himself. And he knows that he is totally lacking in that regard. This tax collector feels ashamed because of his sins. And because he feels ashamed, he does not even look up to heaven as he prays. And he makes sure that others don't see what he's doing either. He is ashamed because of his sins, and therefore he does this in private. His conscience accuses him. And so he knows God also to have mercy on him. Note well that he does not mention that he has sinned against God because he transgressed the Eighth Commandment, stealing from others. He doesn't ask for God's forgiveness because of the things he does. But he asks God the forgiveness of his sins because of who he is, a sinner. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This this tax collector realizes that he sins all the time, that it's baked in. That's who he is. He realizes that he has to become a totally different, a totally new person. You will not come to such an insight as long as you compare your conduct to others. For when you compare yourself to others, then you say to God, look at me, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a robber or a thief. Those are the kinds of offensive things I don't do. Brothers and sisters, when you realize who God is, then you do not try to build yourself up in the sight of others, and especially not in the sight of God. We come to the second point as to how God thinks about you. God is the Holy One. He is without blemish or defect. He is totally perfect. He is full of glory and majesty. And he is the one that Almighty God is the one who sees you. And if you see God in this way, then you also realize that you are much more guilty than you ever thought. For then you realize that that Almighty God sees you who you are, a perpetual and hopeless sinner. And then you get down on your knees and say, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Do you know what happens then, brother or sister, boys and girls, when you humble yourself like that? Well, then God forgives you your sins. 
every single one of them. Even those sins that you commit every day and about which you mourn every day because you just don't seem to be able to help yourself. And those sins that make you realize that you are a bad person, your lack of discipline, your lack of devotion to God and to your loved ones, your lack of prayer life. But when you humble yourself like that before God, then he welcomes you with open arms. And then he exalts you. He puts you on a high place. When you humble yourself like that, then God, instead of thinking evil about you, thinks very highly of you. Not because of that prayer as such, or because of anything else that you do, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ that you receive the gift of salvation. It's a wonderful gift. It's a beautiful gift to all who approach the throne of grace and ask for the forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins and give glory to God for his creation and his recreation. It's a gift free of charge. For the catechism says that God grants to me, gives to me, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, the perfect satisfaction and righteousness and holiness of Christ. And he grants these to me as if I myself have never committed any sin. And so he hands these things over to you. And that's his gift to you. But that's not all. The catechism also says that he imputes those things to me. What does that mean? For if someone grants you something, gives you something, that is not the same as if then that person also imputes those things to you. What's the difference? What's the difference between the gift and the imputation? Well, for example, someone may give me a new car, free of charge. Someone gives it to me out of the goodness of his or her heart. There are no strings attached. There are no payments. He or she will even pay for the gas and the maintenance. It's a gift. But the car is a certain make and model. Let's say it's a Ford. And it says on the car that it's made by the Ford Motor Company in Oakville, Ontario. But now before the donor gives me that car, he also changes the name of the maker of that car. He removes the name of the Ford Motor Company and, it's, and in its place inscribes that it is made by the Reverend Willem B. Slump in Edmonton. That's ridiculous, of course. I know nothing about making cars. But yet, even though it doesn't make sense, that's what that donor does. Well, that is what we are referring to in the Catechism when it speaks about the imputation of the works of Christ. The Catechism says that God not only gives me the gift of salvation, but that then he also treats me as if I had never committed any sin and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience that Christ has rendered for me. All I have to do is believe this, and it is so. The work of Christ is now my work. It is as if I have accomplished a perfect walk and a perfect talk here on earth. It is as if I have been completely obedient to God and his commandments every single moment of my life. That's ridiculous, of course. We all know it's not true. 
And it doesn't really make sense. But that's how God sees me. That's what imputation means. And so, if you think salvation is not a certainty for yourself because of your many sins, it's understandable that you feel that way. For it doesn't make sense that God wants to save you. And yet he does. It doesn't make sense that he wants to make the work of Christ your work. And yet he does. He imputes to you the righteousness of Christ, it says in the Catechism. That means that he treats you as if you have fulfilled every requirement of the law, even though you did nothing of the sort. And that is why the Catechism also speaks about the perfect satisfaction that is imputed to you. That means that absolutely nothing has to be added to what Christ has done. It is enough, more than enough. It is enough even for the biggest sins that you ever may have committed. And it says that he will also impute to you the holiness of Christ. Holiness has to do with purity. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have to feel dirty because of your sins. No, you have Christ's holiness, his purity, imputed to you. Now you may know yourself washed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, beloved, that, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, is the wonderful gospel of salvation. That's how God sees you. And that is the difference between the gift and the imputation. The rich man in the passage, in the passage that we read together, did not understand any of that. He did not understand how God looks at you. He asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man holds the Lord Jesus high. He calls him good, good teacher. But then the Lord Jesus right away puts him in his place. He brings him back down to earth and says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now you may ask, isn't Jesus a good man? Isn't he even God himself? Oh, yes, he is. But that is not why this rich man addresses the Lord Jesus as being good. He does not see him as a God incarnate. And the Lord Jesus knows that. He looks right into the heart of that man. This rich young ruler measures the Lord Jesus in the way that a worldly man does who measures a man according to his works. This one is good. That one is bad, and this one is a little bit better than that one, and that one is a little bit worse. It is with that attitude that the rich man approaches the Lord Jesus. But you can never approach the Lord Jesus in that way. This rich young ruler put the Lord Jesus on his own subjective way skill. However, the Lord Jesus wants to teach this young man that you can't do that. And so he directs him to the law of God. He gives him a summary. And then the rich young man says that he has kept all the laws of God ever since he was a boy. The Lord Jesus does not directly contradict this man. He does not rebuke him. No, the Lord Jesus wants to lead him to the truth. The truth about man's proper relationship with the Lord is God. And so he tells him that he still lacks one thing. 
He tells him to sell everything that he has and to give it to the poor. Then he can be a follower of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus saw precisely what was wrong with this young man. He was too much tied to this earth, to worldly things. This rich young ruler thought that he, that he through his own accomplishments was worth something. It's somewhat understandable that this rich young man thought in this way. For you see, that's one of the curses of being rich. When you are rich, people treat you as someone important. They listen to you, they pay attention to you, they're nice to you, and they compliment you more than they would compliment someone else. They do that not because it's actually true, but because they know that they have something to offer you. A job, money, a sharing of your toys and your possessions. But because of the way other people treat those rich people, then such a rich person runs the danger of actually believing those lies about himself, that he is more important than others. And then he begins to think of himself more highly than he should. As if because of your money, you're wiser and smarter than others. That was the problem with this rich young ruler. He didn't understand how God looks at you. God looks at your heart. God asks, whom do you love more? Me or your money? Who is number one in your life? The rich young ruler says to the Lord Jesus that he has kept all of God's commandments since he was a boy. That is exactly the opposite of what we read together in the Heidelberg Catechism. I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. And this young rich ruler said the opposite. He said, I have kept the commandments. Now, is it wrong to be rich, brothers and sisters? No, it's a blessing from God. Do you have to sell everything in your possessions and give it all to the poor? No, God does not require that from you. But if you love your money more than you love God, then your money will perish together with you. That was the problem of this rich young ruler. He loved his riches too much, and he loved too much the power that comes with those riches, more than he loved the Lord Jesus. Is this rich young ruler lying to the Lord Jesus when he says that he kept all his commandments? Well, in his mind, he wasn't. As far as he was concerned, he never committed adultery. He had never stolen from anybody either. And he has shown his love to God and his faithful worship of him by going to the temple and by making all the right sacrifices. He didn't lie, at least not in accordance with the standards he set. God, however, sets a different standard. He does not just want outward obedience. No, God wants our heart. He wants you to love him more than all the possessions that you have here on earth. For without him you have nothing. You must believe in him. You must rely on him. You may not be anxious about your earthly possessions 
wondering all the time what the stock market is going to do or the real estate market or by being anxious about your job or the loss of some of your possessions. Oh, sure, you have to live with the ups and downs of life, but your possessions do not determine your happiness, or at least they shouldn't. Without God, your riches mean nothing. Without faith in God, you have an empty life. And don't think that faith as such saves you either, as if now faith makes you acceptable to God. You must not think either that you become a better person because of your faith. Oh, sure, faith has great significance, for it is through faith that we grab on to God's promises. And that is why it can even be said that faith justifies us, because through faith we receive God's mercy. Faith, however, is only the means by which we acquire God's promises. And as a means, it is indeed essential. Faith is the hand that reaches out to God to receive his promises. The hand of faith is the means. But that hand is a filthy hand. For our faith is far from perfect. And therefore we must not think that faith as such makes us a better person. We are never justified on the basis of our faith. If that were the case, then our faith would be some kind of accomplishment by which we earn something with God. And then it would be something for us to boast about. And then you would always wonder whether or not your faith is good enough. And that is why we don't baptize on the basis of our faith either, as those who believe in adult baptism do. For then you would always be wondering, is my faith then good enough? No, it doesn't depend on us, it depends on God. You may not be wondering whether or not it is strong enough or good enough, or whether or not your faith compares favorably to somebody else's faith. No, faith is only the means by which we acquire God's promises. You look into the perfect law of God, and realize that you have sinned against every one of God's commandments, and that nevertheless God imputes to you the righteousness of Christ. It's yours. You are treated as if you yourself have accomplished it. You don't have to come to God with any kind of offering in order to make yourself acceptable to him, for you and I have nothing to offer him. The way God sees us also has great consequences for the way in which we see each other. For we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. We're all saved sinners through faith. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that give you great joy? Doesn't that lift an enormous burden from your shoulder? When you have that knowledge, then you can grow from that. And you can hold your head high. Better yet, then Christ grows in you. His love, his patience, his obedience, his kindness, his goodness. And then you will also see your brothers and sisters in a different light. And also the people in the world. Then you can also be more loving, more patient, kinder. Then the sins of other people do not bother you as much. Because you also know yourself to be a sinner. Oh sure, sin bothers you. And it should. But 
you may also at the same time know that those who humble themselves before God are saved from their sins. And that you no longer have to compare yourself to others favorably or unfavorably. For you know that it is only through grace that you are saved. You no longer have to doubt, for you have the right vision. You have the right perspective. You have God's gracious and wonderful perspective. And that's all that counts. Amen.